0: In this 594th episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, I talk with Dan Andrews and Ian Schoen from the Tropical MBA podcast. And we cover the gamut, but we talk a lot about how they've started over and they've started a new business after selling their physical products company back in 2015, I believe it was. And then they ran their community, the Dynamite Circle they have in-person events, they have a podcast, you know, it's, it's very much a sister podcast to startups for the rest of us. It's just they don't focus necessarily on SaaS, but then they saw a need within their community. And it's a need that would be really hard for most people to bootstrap because it is a two-sided marketplace. But Dan and Ian have the advantage of having an audience on one or both sides of that marketplace. And you'll hear how we talk through that in today's episode. Thanks for joining me as always, and let's dive right into our conversation. So when I introduce you guys, I never use your last names. I always say, Do you know Dan and Ian from Tropical MBA? That's it's like Tropical (laughs) MBA is your last like your collective last name. (laughs) Dan Andrews and Ian Schoen are joining me today. Gents, thanks so much for coming on the
1: show. Yeah, pleasure to be here.
0: I described the Tropical MBA podcast, which used to be called the Lifestyle Business Podcast years ago. Yeah. Years ago. I describe it as a sister podcast to startups for the rest of us. And you're one of the few, the two of you are one of, some of the few podcasters who have been doing it longer than I have. There aren't many people I meet who've actually been cranking on this. Because 2009, is that when you originally launched?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I do feel like very similar themes, very similar ethic. One is like Ian and I are very concerned that like our business chops coming from doing actual business is more, you know, a bigger deal than the podcast business itself. And that's something that you guys have always had. And I guess the difference is, is 25% of our audience is developers. So the rest are e-com owners, publishers, Affiliate marketers.
0: Courses, info products, ebooks that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, all
1: the other. Crypto.
0: Crypto. Well, there's a lot of crypto yeah. <laughs> going on in there. Yeah, <laughs> and that's how I think of it too, is there's a lot of, over there's like a Venn diagram of overlap, but you came with the digital nomadism. That was kind of how you started. I mean, the lifestyle business and then Tropical MBA when I used to listen to it, I was like, this is super cool, but I'm not going to strap on a backpack, you know, and head to Chiang Mai. But these dudes are living this, you know, pretty amazing life. Both of you have s- kind of settled down a little bit in Austin, Texas now. Do you feel like the digital nomad aspect of, of the early emphasis is still alive and well? Do you emphasize that as much or do you feel like it's more like kind of a business focus?
2: I think it's always hopefully been business focused, but definitely we had a lot of lifestyle in there. Um, Certainly, you know, um, obviously COVID has slowed things down. We are both based in Austin, Texas. And for for us, there's actually been a, a lot of huge benefit to that. You know, we got to kind of sit down over the last couple of years and like restructure our business in the way that we operate and kind of interact with each other. So it's it's been amazing because we haven't really been in the same place for this long together. Um, so.
1: I think COVID for that, certainly. I also want to point out one of the things Ian and I often talk about on our show is like our digital nomad journey was one of necessity because you were a California developer typing up websites. We were California marketers and manufacturers desperate for development support and we couldn't afford it in California. So we went to the Philippines and Vietnam to hire our first group of developers and marketers. And so along the way, it was like kind of, it was so early days we were like, this is amazing, right? Like, this is, this is actually a thing. Like, we're making money doing this. And so we started sharing that journey on the podcast. And uh, I believe we were the first regularly publishing bloggers or podcasters that owned a physical products location-independent business.
0: Yeah, that's pretty incredible. And that's the thing is it to my knowledge, you never sold the make money online courses. You didn't monetize the podcast in like, hey, we know how to do business and we're going to teach you how to do it. It's been so much more about building the community and you have uh, the Dynamite Circle, which is a, a paid online membership community that you had long before we had MicroConf Connect. And then you since have started in-person events. And I, was that because you heard us, Mike and I, talk about MicroConf? Were, were you influenced by that? Because I think you launched those after us because we started 2011.
1: In those early days, we were inundated by emails from listeners basically saying, we really want to know who else is out there. Where are you guys? How do we do this? And so Ian and I did launch a seminars business in 2012 where forty-four students paid us two thousand dollars, but we actually like way over-delivered. We had people come to a island resort; they stayed with us for ten days. We did presentations every day and workshops and masterminds. I remember. And uh, this now. Ian and I just were absolutely exhausted, like emotionally. <laughs> like we we realized like we can't help you guys build a business in ten days. Like it was it was interesting. A lot of great businesses came from it, and it was during those seminars that we were like what if we just like rented a nice hotel and got everybody together? And that was the first DCBKK in 2012. And we were there and it just like the light bulb went off. We were like, people just want to meet each other and we're getting more credit for their business growth just by throwing a party than we were by doing 10 days worth of teaching every day.
0: Right, and that's the thing is the old model before, I'll say 2009, the old info marketer model, Dan Kennedy and those, those folks was always to be the guru. It was, I know the stuff and I'm going to teach you. And I feel like that model switched with kind of our generation because early, actually, if you go back and listen to early startups to the rest of us, I was trying to kind of be that of like, I know all the stuff, but within a year, two years, no, it wasn't, it was before that. It was probably episode 30. And by the time we got together at MicroConf, I remember thinking the value here is getting people together in a room. Like you said, they want the relationships versus no one person here knows it all, you know, contrary to what, internet marketers used to claim, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, the guruism didn't really go anywhere. You can still see like that DNA in our marketplace. But I think the transparency allowed this new kind of practitioner preacher, or we call it the chops index, like watch me do my thing right in front of you every week. And that's solidarity, that's trust, that's peer-to-peer. And that's something that people are probably even more interested in. You want to meet your peers, you want to meet your people as opposed to you know, kiss the ring of Dan Kennedy if you pay the right amount of money for the inner circle sort of access.
0: Right, and that's always been something I think that resonates certainly with me and why I've been a listener since 2009, 2010 of your show and I think why a lot of folks resonate with it is that you've always been practitioners and while you started the dynamite circle community you had a business manufacturing cat furniture valet podiums you sold that business in i'm going to try to remember this because i believe when i had heard the episode when i was in a apartment in france with my family you know how you know those moments where you hear something <laughs> yeah. and it's like i remember th- what the apartment looked like i remember the kids were younger but what i don't remember is what year it was i think it was 2015 yep. is that right uh, yep. and it would have been fall what is it september october
2: uh, it was i think it was summer because i was in greece okay and i remember kind of where i was too i was on a hotel bed like you know signing signing these documents and then this was like the biggest deal that we ever did right so i was like signing these documents and then the next day i got sick you know like when you uh when all your adrenaline just runs out of your body. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I'm signing
0: millions of dollars yeah. in documents here. And you're probably doing it on your iPhone with your finger. Yeah. I, I, I did one of those too uh, at a kid's cello, kid's cello camp. And I'm supposed to be in there super, you know, like managing the kid. And I'm like, they're like, we got to get these docs signed. And so I, I walked out and the teacher gave me a bunch of crap about it. And I was like, you need to cut me just a little. Slow. I am stressed. The most stressed I've ever been. And so so you guys sold that business and then you know within a couple of years launched Dynamite Jobs which we're going to talk quite a bit about today which is tell me if I'm describing it right it's a job board and it's a it's online recruiting help those are the two kind of the two yep. focuses yeah I'm quite familiar with it because we at Tiny Seed Proper have used you to help fill two of our roles so far and then a bunch of the tiny seed and frankly microconf companies when they go to hire have used your flat fee recruiting service. This is a lesson I learned so as we were building drip, I was cash strapped, bootstrapped, doing all the hiring myself. And by the time we got to 10 people, I was basically that's, that was half my job, 10 20 hours a week I was doing it and I hated it. And I could all the recruiters I talked to were like, "Yeah, 20% of first year salary, right?" And I was like, "This is f- Insane. Like, why doesn't I was looking all over for like who's a reputable recruiter that I can trust who I can pay what three grand, five grand, like a reasonable number? Because I could have afforded that, but I couldn't afford 15 or 20. And then when we got acquired, we had three, two or three in house recruiters, and I was able to basically let them do all the hard work and then just pick the best candidates. And I thought to myself, I will never go back. Like, I'm going to find someone when I leave Drip. If I ever hire again, I'm not doing it myself. And so when you guys started talking about it, I was like, this is a baller idea. And I believe right now you charge just like 35 dollars $3,600 for a done-for-you recruiting light is how I think about it. Like you market it and you sift through the resumes and you do the pre screens and then you kind of hand the best candidates off. Is that a relatively accurate description?
2: Uh, close. The price is a little off, but yeah, we have a... What's, what's the
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We just raised the price. Thanks for the yeah, shout yeah. out, Rob. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Uh, how much is it?
2: If we, do, if we do the recruiting for you, meaning we handle the whole process, we place the person in your company, it's $5,500. Okay. Um, we do have a light version of that where essentially we screen candidates for you, but we don't actually talk with them on the phone, and that's $2,000. And then going down from there, we have our offerings you know, post a job offerings, basically.
1: We do do like all the promotion. I mean, for me, I I kind of feel this anxiety when I come to a job board, like, oh my gosh, all the work's ahead of me right now. I got to like compose something that's interesting. I got to market it. I got to decide whether this is the right job board or not, because I don't know, you know, I'm not like, I do it four times a year. So I don't know, like, is this the best job board for marketers? Is this? And I I think we kind of tapped into that negative emotion of like, we'll take care of it for you. Don't worry, just get on on the phone with us for 15 minutes. And we'll take care of it for you. And I think that's like this sort of business generation heuristic that we've seen over time in our industry, which is like blank for the rest of us. So there's this really established recruiting industry. Like you said, 20% of first year salary in tech. Everybody knows about it. It's enormous. But they get so well compensated for serving their traditional niche that they're not going to cross the chasm and come over and do it for the rest of us. And so I think as our peers mature and become the next generation of business leaders, there's a big opportunity for listeners of this podcast just to provide professional services, marketing services for the rest of us. And that's essentially what our DJ recruiting product is.
0: And how did you get there? You know, again, you sold your company in 2015. You're running a successful podcast. You have an online and in-person community. And that's a business unto itself that is profitable. Where was the the spark or the click of like, this is what we're going to spend the next, I know the two of you, this is what we're going to spend the next decade working on. Like, that's a big commitment to this. And so how did that come together?
2: Well, I think um, the genesis story of this is like, goes way back to the tropical MBA, which is essentially we were trying to find people that we could afford Oftentimes, uh, they're in other countries, right? For our business, you know, it was our competitive advantage. Like even going back to the manufacturing company back in the day, like we couldn't afford to hire designers, developers, marketers in California. So we had to look abroad essentially. And I think we became pretty good at it and people recognized us as like having that talent, being able to find these people. So there's another Genesis story too, which is essentially in, in the DC, which is our community. People were like bombing in, to the forum basically saying like hey I'm trying to hire somebody does anybody know anybody hey I've got this job would you like to work it and it was kind of like in a lot of ways like clogging up the forum I mean there's a lot of different instances of this happening when you own a forum right like people coming in and pitching or whatever but one of the biggest things that we saw in there was like people trying to pitch job opportunities and so we thought hey What if we start marketing these roles for people? And that was essentially the genesis story for Dynamite Jobs.
1: Yeah, we have like over a thousand members in there. And we were like, if we could just like harvest these jobs, that would earn a really impressive audience. I mean, our members are hustling startup founders. They were starting in some cases to use our events as like hiring fairs. Like they they were realizing that the quality of a remote first primary candidate, like somebody who really understands what we're doing, is so valuable that they were willing to like risk their reputation in the group to, to build their businesses. They didn't want to go to Indeed.com or other communities that just don't, quote, get it. And so I think we saw that like sort of annoyance, that scratch your own itch, like, man, people are trying to jump on our bandwagon to leverage our brand to do this anyway. Why don't we help them turn around and turn an annoyance into an opportunity? And it was kind of interesting because, you know, we just started basically saying like, look, we'll put all our energy into promoting your jobs. And thanks for being clients of the D.C. private members. We'll like work on your behalf to find great people for you. And we essentially just did that for years and didn't make any money. And uh, we we put a lot of our backs into it and we saw it in the audience, you know. Dynamite Jobs was the fastest thing we've ever grown. We've never, I always felt like Ian and I were always kind of like putting brick after brick after brick. And this was really the first thing where we saw some levers like, oh my gosh, like we have 10,000 emails of subscribers all of a sudden. You know, we saw an opportunity during the pandemic to step in with our full-time effort and to try to turn those eyeballs into revenue.
0: Got it. And so did it start with the job board then of, hey, we're going to allow foot folks to post and charge a fee or you weren't charging early on, you were just promoting?
2: Well, we didn't charge hardly anything. I mean, a a lot of the companies that were posting jobs were DCers and so essentially our value prop to them was like, hey, you're a member of our community, let us help you find these people that you need. And so, you know, we either charge like nothing or very little. And looking back, like it was amazing the amount of running around that our team did to try and fill these jobs. Like our key metric back in the day was a number of jobs filled, which like if you look at it, it's still a good metric and we still kind of keep track of it. But it's kind of a ridiculous one because like half the jobs people post get abandoned or like blown up for like whatever reason. As a founder, like you change your mind halfway through, you know, and here we are like scrambling for like basically no money to fill these jobs. But um, it was a really good exercise for us because it taught us actually like how to fill a job. And so that's kind of when we started to think about like, you know, the recruiting service essentially. And this wasn't just going to be a job board per se, but there was like a services component behind it.
0: Right. Well, and what you're talking about is like providing an enormous amount of value for free upfront, more than anyone else would be willing to do that 's what you 've done with your podcast, where you have hundreds and hundreds of free episodes educating folks, and then you start this job board and you essentially do what anyone else would charge what is it three five hundred dollars for thirty day job posting, and they don 't do anything beyond that, and you just it sounds like you just gave value value value. And this is one of those things, you know. Dan asked me this when I was on your show a few weeks ago, but it's about how I say, you know, never bootstrap a two-sided marketplace, unless <laughs> you can do it. If you have reach into one or both sides of, of that market, if you already have an audience on one or both sides, it's much much easier. It's still hard. You're fighting war on two fronts, but you guys have reach into that space, and you're willing to take this approach that not a lot of people are which was to have staff working to fill these jobs, right? Nobody does that. And that's that's why I think this has been successful.
1: In 2019 our revenue was less than $5,000.
0: But you had the DC basically, you had staff working on the podcast in DC and were able to, to is that it was like kind of compensating?
1: That's right. Our membership is a profitable business and so we thought this is a really interesting marketing arm and services arm. So we're providing these services on behalf of our members from their dues. We have a full-time person trying to maximize number of placements and build a lot of relationships on the site. I do think it's interesting though, like when things changed is when Ian, myself and our CTO Simon Payne got involved and that was probably like late summer, fall 2020 And we all decided that because you look at the website, you know, our website kind of fundamentally looks similar to what it did in 2019, you know, like from a passerby. So it's all that stuff that's happening below the website. And I think that's a, a message for makers, you know, like getting on the phone with your clients, having that calendar link front and center. Those conversations ultimately led us to our monetization paths. And what we're able to do with that services revenue is pump it back into our platform and building technology for our users.
2: Yeah, I mean if 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 you back up a, a bit like Number one, Rob, we cite you all the time. Like it's, it's kind of, it's funny in our meetings. We'll be like, you know, Rob said not to do this, man. Like we <laughs> <the laughs> probably shouldn't be doing this, man. Two side of marketplace. <laughs> so that still comes up all the time. But, um, you know, if you back up and you take a look at Dan and myself, like we're not software guys. Like we, we never have been like, we've tried a couple of times and this is kind of our first go at it. So like, if you look at like the history of Dynamite Jobs, like it was a service-based company. We started with a WordPress site and we started running running around, literally running around trying to solve people's problems. And I think that's been an advantage for us because we couldn't just go off and like write software to like solve these problems. We actually had to physically do the work and figure it out. Now it did get to a certain time where we brought Simon on our, our CTO, where we figured out like, hey, starting to connect these dots, starting to have a platform, starting to have these profiles, starting to have it easy for these candidates to apply to jobs. Like this stuff all makes sense, right? And at a certain point, like as marketers, we couldn't do that. So we're starting to see, you know, a lot of these like software opportunities, but a lot of this is still like very new to us because we're not
1: software guys per se. Yeah, I mean, we're the guys that like the Airtable people are like, huh, they're an interesting user. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Totally. You guys are software guys now. Yeah. (laughs) You have a CTO who's writing custom code, and I believe you have at least one more developer like you. You're running a software company here real soon.
1: Yeah, and we're hiring another. One of the things that I thought of before this conversation is, we're not in any position, I think a lot of listeners of this show aren't in a position to not have premium developers working for you. You know, the market is a bloodbath right now. For technology people, it's competitive. But you got to find some way to to step up and get quality people in because I think we really missed out on a lot of quality development this year by kind of pitter-pattering around with some junior folks. So another big argument for tiny seed funding is to... Just to be able to enter the market with confidence and not to lose that six or 12 critical months. Ian and I are going back to the marketplace on Monday to hire our third developer, and we're not screwing around. Like, you know what I mean? And like, as people who, you know, I don't sit in the Golang every day or I don't understand what tailwind is, you know, the nuts and bolts. So I wanna hedge my bets, right? Because I wanna be a responsible entrepreneur. But I think one of the lessons I learned this year is, there are places that it's worth cutting corners and your development resources in a startup isn't really one of them. So I know that sounds obvious, but it's, it's harder to say I'm going to write this check. And then you're on the line to go and create the revenue that'll support it responsibly.
2: I'll give you an example of like how we really screwed that up in the last year was uh, actually Dan, I think had a great idea, which is essentially like a services marketplace. So if you look at like remote work and like the the future of work in general, like I think there's a lot of like services overlap, meaning like, Yeah, essentially employees will be replaced by services at some point because there's a lot of efficiency in that. And I mean, we're already starting to see this happen. Like we have clients come to us and they're like, hey, I'm thinking about hiring a senior marketer. I'm thinking about hiring this firm, right? That's a decision that people are making these days. And so we've seen this and we've done this in their own businesses. And so we launched a services marketplace on the side of DJ because it's like, hey, I'm trying to solve a problem here. It's like maybe I need a person, a service a consultant, a freelancer, but it's all kind of the same thing. And it essentially didn't work. It bombed big time. But when you when you look at like the amount of development resources that went into that project, it was easily six months. And it's something that we just like wiped off our screen the other day, like the buttons are completely gone. So, you know, it's not to say it wasn't a good idea, but certainly like timing wasn't good. We didn't have enough resources to market it properly. Like people don't really understand it. There's a lot of reasons I think why it didn't work in the context of of DJ, but in terms of our resources, like it put us behind, like making that decision. And I think that's going to happen to us a couple other times, but trying to figure out like how to properly deploy, you know, what I call like as our factory, you know, how to properly deploy our factory so they're making the right things that are pushing us forward. It's really difficult. And it's also really powerful. Like Dan and I can sit here like as as non-technical people and kind of order the team around to like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we had a services marketplace? And everybody's like, yeah, it would be great. And it's like, well, now we're back 12 months. <laughs> Good idea, boss. <laughs> Who doesn't know anything about this. yeah.
0: yeah. Well, it's tough, man. It's tough to know what's going to work. And Tim, I think it's Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, who says there will always be many more good ideas that we can possibly implement. And we just have to figure out which one or two we focus on, right? And that's the trick of, I guess it's all business probably, but like software especially, because if you don't focus, then you, you do that. You wind up building entire features that no one uses and you lose months of time. I think it's especially, especially challenging
1: when you're writing code. Well, and you got to babysit those features once you build them you know they don't just hang out and you know you got to constantly be improving fixing bugs and so we've been really focused on this concept of pushing deeper like why isn't everybody just have this eating grin the entire time they're using our job board you know like the, these are the sorts of concepts that we're focusing on right now is to to, is to find opportunities in the details as opposed to more like expansive we're like the I think Jordan Gall calls it CEO bombing like you just come into a meeting and you're like hey I had a dream last night everybody like job boards this is the future of work you know and it's like how about the future of that button that doesn't work on the, on the other browser let's talk about that
0: right the nuts and bolts yeah Our sponsor this week is Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Microsoft for Startups is on a mission to help all founders innovate and grow no matter their background, location, or progress. To this end, they've recently launched Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, a platform that provides founders with free resources to help solve startup challenges. Members of the platform get a ton of benefits that can help founders build their startup faster from day one up to $150,000 in Azure credits, free development tools like GitHub, free Microsoft collaboration and productivity software like Teams and Outlook, offers from startup-friendly partners, and more a strong and diverse network is critical to a startup's success. And so Microsoft for startups founders hub is making this historically inaccessible resource open to all by providing members access to a mentor network, as well as technical advisors. Members can book time with mentors to get expert feedback and advice on their product roadmap, business plan, fundraising approach, marketing plan, and more. The program is open to everyone, no matter your startup stage. And unlike other programs, there are no funding requirements. And the sign-up process takes less than five minutes. Learn more about Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub at aka.ms startupsfortherestofus startups for the rest of us. That's aka.ms startupsfortherestofus startups for the rest of us. You guys have a couple frameworks that I think are, are really interesting. Um, one is the thousand-day principle. And Dan, do you want to define that? Briefly, And then my question there is, where is Dynamite Jobs in that journey? And where are the two of you in that journey with Dynamite Jobs?
1: So the Thousand Day Principle, I first heard of it from a mentor of mine named David McKeegan, who runs a wonderful business, which is also a for the rest of us business. It's a tax consulting for digital nomads or location location. Greenback? Yeah.
0: Greenback Tax Services, yeah.
1: And he, I, I, this was like in 2012, and I was basically like, I, you know, I was in my 20s. I was like, why isn't everybody here? Like, we were hanging out at some villa in Bali, and I'm like, why? Like, they, got, they read the blog post, right? Like, why aren't more people joining this entrepreneurial revolution? It seems like this amazing opportunity. And he said, I think the thing that people aren't willing to traverse or that they don't understand is that they'll have to make less than they would make at their professional careers for three years. Or about a thousand days and I think most people can't get through the thousand days and that's why they won't join and so I just thought it was clever and interesting and sticky and so I started just kind of asking like well, what normally happens in the first year what normally happens in the second year and on the third year you kind of have this feeling where like now I can hire people to run the business for me and I make as much as I made previously at my professional career And I've just sort of seen this pattern happen time and time again. I think since that time, the cultural context has changed. But I think the basic process of suffering for three years in order to get your vision out into the world is a decent rule of thumb, or at least a decent way to set expectations for what the journey might look like.
0: Yeah, that's in line. I often say think in terms of years, not months, especially if you're bootstrapping, because people read TechCrunch and it's like raised millions and then have millions of users. And it's like, it just doesn't happen that way.
1: Yeah, I think for me, it's this idea of emotionally plowing through plateaus. They're really frustrating. And I think when we came back to Dynamite Jobs, I had a little bit of rose-colored glasses because we had already had a, quote, successful business. And then feeling that pain again of like, okay, we're back here. It's like the 14th Wednesday in a row. Our revenue is the same. Like we made a bunch of mistakes. It just feels like there's all these problems. And that's a lot of what growing a business is. It's not always positive feedback every day and you're, you're hanging out at plateaus until you break through to the next level. And it's been interesting to have to kind of eat some humble pie and come back and like go through the process again. Like, We're not immune to these struggles and challenges and doubts of sort of sustaining yourself for months and years at a time where things aren't always up and to the right.
0: Yeah, but you guys have built so many assets that you can lean on, right? It's like you've built the audience, you've built the community, and you've built a stream of revenue to be able to basically fund yourself. So as long as you're motivated and interested, you you have infinite runway effectively. And that's something that you've earned, right? Through 13 years of podcasting and community building.
2: Well, that's the other thing about the uh, thousand day principle is like not only have you replaced your income from a job at the end of those three years, hopefully, but now you have an asset, so, um, you know, I think we're just starting to be at the point where, uh, you know, we've reached our thousand days with, uh, dynamite jobs the first year or two though, like Dan and I were just like throwing a bunch of cash at it. Like we weren't paying much attention to it, meaning like we were the, doing the CEO bomb, right? So it's like, we had all of these good ideas. We had some cash to deploy, but we didn't really have our finger on the pulse. So it's been about like a year and a half of like our full-time kind of concentrated effort on this.
0: And in 2019, Dan, you mentioned that you, you think you had about 5,000 in revenue and you've been public about this, but in 2021, you had half a million dollars in revenue and 2020, some number in between that, do you remember what it was?
1: 80,000, 80, I think it was, yeah, it was something between 50 and 80,000.
0: So that's a huge jump. I mean, that's almost a 10x from 2020 to 2021. What do you ascribe that to?
2: There's a couple of things. I mean, um, number one is like uh, Dan and I started putting our full time effort into it. So I think that there was a big change when that started to happen.
1: The second thing that happened. And let me just underline what that is, because like it's a lot of it's emotional bravery. Yeah. You know, because like you said, Rob, we, we didn't need to do this. And so... We were trying to like get real with ourselves about what we want our careers to look like over the next five years, what goals we want to take on, and why we're going to sit in front of our desks and go through the pain of having difficult client interactions, of looking at competitors who are outperforming us. It, there's all these emotional difficulties of doing this work. And I think for Ian and I, we had to have a rock solid communal goal of why we were going to do it. So that's how I'm interpreting that point of like getting our fingers on the pulse is like, it's a lot easier just to like put something out on the Internet and have some Wi-Fi money coming your way and just kind of, you know, ride your bike or something.
2: I think another way to say it is like we had to engineer our backs being up against the wall which is kind of a a unique position to be in. You know, when we first started our business way back in, what was it, 2007, 2008? Like our backs were literally up against the wall. Like we had no choice. And this time, yeah, I mean, it was like we had to throw ourselves to the wolves when we weren't necessarily in a position where you had to do that per se,
1: but uh, we wanted to do it. Well, and one of the critical next steps was stepping up and genuinely hiring people and recruiting people who were better than us. For example, our CTO we kind of had this friendship happening over the years and we watched each other's projects and supported each other. They were, we were like internet friends, you know, but I wasn't confident enough to say you should change your life to come work with us. And that was a problem. Like, because I didn't have a vision, Ian and I weren't on the same page. We, w- we didn't decide what that was. The moment we decided that, Hey, we're going to go for this. Here's how we're going to go for it. We were able to recruit a CTO, you know, we were clear about the vision and we were able to recruit a senior recruiter, both of whom have skill sets that are, you know, far beyond Ian and myself. So that, that was a watershed moment. Now all of a sudden we can sell $6,000 products. I, I can't evaluate candidates to a $6,000 level. You know, our, our senior recruiter has been doing it for 15 years.
0: It sounds like you committed to the business at a certain point in 2020 where you're like, oh, this is what we're going to do and kind of went, I'll say all in. I know you you still have all this other stuff going on, but you kind of went all in on it and that gave you the confidence to bring on people at that level.
2: Is that right? Yeah, I'd say it was a confidence of going all in. But then once we started hiring professionals and I don't think we'll ever go back from this now, but it's like once you start hiring professionals, like people that are truly better than you it really changes the scope of like what's possible, you know, even in our product manufacturing business that we sold in 2015, like everybody was like pretty good at what they did, but like no one came into that business just like on fire, like, the best in the business kind of thing. And I feel like we're starting to cultivate that over at at down jobs. And it's, it's certainly inspiring for me to come to work every day and like watch people perform on a stage that they're professionals at. Like certainly it's expensive. That's one thing to like note is like, if you're going to build that kind of organization, like it's not cheap, but I think the the things that we're going to be able to achieve with these like a players is going to be pretty cool.
0: What's well, interesting, once you get on this side of it, because I'm there as well, and I'm going to give a couple examples of how I made the same mistakes of hiring junior people and really kind of wasting time and or wasting energy. But once you're on the other side of that, and you're like, "My early hires are all going to be senior people, they're all going to be better than I am at, at their particular job." suddenly the case for like raising funding makes a lot more sense. Because I know when I was bootstrapping and I hear people say, I'm bootstrapping and that's all I do. That's great, but you don't have money to hire, hire senior people. And in the early days of Drip, you know, obviously Derek Reimer, you guys have seen him now do Drip and then Savvy Cal. I mean, he was, when I met him, he was 23 years old, but he had the chops of a senior, you know, of Simon, right, of a, of a super senior person. But everyone else we hired were these people out of code school, you know, out of three-month code academies in, a, in essence because I didn't have the money to hire him, And, you know, it worked out, but it took us way longer and there was a lot more headache to get there. And the moment that we got acquired and had all this venture funding to spend, it was game changing for us. That was another moment where I said, I'm not going back much like you guys have decided, like you've seen the other side of it. And now we hired Tracy to run, you know, Tiny Seed Americas. And it's like, she is a better integrator, I think, right? It's the kind of type A, keep this trains running on time. Like she's a way better integrator than ANRI. Xander runs events better than I could, than I ever could. And we used to run them and they were successful. And then Xander started helping us in 2014. I was like, wait a minute, this guy is really good. And so this is something that I think it's like a hard learned lesson because I'm cheap, right? I I think we're all
2: cheap. I I, I don't think you're necessarily cheap, but I think like it's kind of part of the bootstrapper's curse is like being resourceful and clever. You know? Yeah. And then you get in this clever pattern, and then you don't realize what you're missing out on because we we were all like super clever to like get our businesses to this point. And then now it's like, well, am I going to keep being clever and maybe cheap
1: or am I going to actually go for it? So I'll be transparent. Earlier in the year, we did this clever thing, which I think was a mistake in retrospect, where we hired multiple developers that were junior and like basically pitted them against each other to see. And we were transparent about that element. But the thing about those salary levels, Rob, is like, you're already at like 60 to 70% of what the premier would would cost, you know? So if we ended up spending more money and wasting more time in the long run than if we just would have went out and got somebody senior. And I think I'm really passionate about this and like these pivotal lever moments. And as the entrepreneur, it's like, okay, well, you were clever about cutting costs. What about being clever about your business model? Like, why can't you pay top of industry? You know, maybe th- there's some, some thinking to be done on the... The upside, the margin side. And that's something that Ian and I have really been exploring intellectually over the past few months. As we really focus in on this new developer we want to hire, like we want someone that's premium, that loves autonomy, that sits on top of our candidate side of the marketplace and just digs into these problems on a daily basis. That's that's different than saying, like, here's how much we think we can afford. And you know what I mean? It's scary too, because now we have to go out and find a way to pay for it. So I agree. We talk a lot about like control. And like, sir, if you raise a little bit of money, now all of a sudden you're not 100% in control. But also that means that your business can morph outside of your immediate skill set and ability to come to work every day. So I'm all in favor of opening up the floodgates a little bit and getting better people involved earlier. It's almost like a self-respect thing too. It's like if your time's worth it, you should be dealing with your peers and people that you look up to.
0: The two of you run a job board and a recruiting agency. When you go to recruit, you're going to hire a developer starting tomorrow, next week. What is it that you have learned that you do differently than someone who kind of doesn't know what they're doing? You know, how do you find great people? Yeah, I, I guess what, you know, what do you pull into that from your learnings?
2: We've learned a lot, so hopefully hopefully we're good at what we do you know when we go to hire a developer, and I think we are there's a couple of things that are going on right now. One of the things that's going on right now is it's like a, a candidate's paradise, essentially, like all these candidates they have multiple offers on the table at any given time, which is kind of a unique point in history. I think it's not generally the case, but right now it is like all these companies um, they're going remote. the companies that have been remote. Are frustrated, I think, because a lot of these. That used to be our advantage, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And so now the candidates, like, you know, you look at like Latin America, Asia, all these different places, they're coming up as well because now everything's flattening and now there's becoming a lot more transparency around the marketplace and salaries and whatnot. It's like, hey, I'm a developer in Latin America. Shouldn't I make just as much as a developer in the United States? I have the same skill set. Here's my portfolio. And so, you know, the costs are going up for everybody. So those are some of the unique things that I think are happening in the landscape today. Now, another thing that I think is happening that we should point out is um, you can't just post a job in most cases on any given job board and find your candidate. Like, and essentially what we do over at Dynamite Jobs is like we post at Dynamite Jobs and then we post a lot of other places on the internet where we think that these people are hanging out because it's very fragmented. I think it's kind of good, you know, it's not, not everybody like back in the day is like going to monster.com and like finding their perfect candidate in five days. It's hard. Like you got to dig around, you got to find these people, especially these candidates that are A players, like they're not necessarily hanging out on job boards. And uh, so what does that mean? Well, maybe that means cold approach. Maybe that means finding them in these weird places, but uh, seeking them out and then trying to figure out what their motivations are. I think this is kind of where an A player recruiter comes in starts to have conversations with candidates in terms of like their motivations. So like what's going on at your job right now? Are you happy with your income? What kind of moves are you trying to make and trying to suss out kind of basically where these candidates are and where they want to be. You know, I think there was actually a thread on hacker news the other day about like why you should always talk to a recruiter. And I think there's a lot of reasons why you should, they can be your advocate as a candidate. They can help you make moves. They can let you know what's going on in the marketplace in terms of salaries they kind of work both sides of the aisle, which is
1: I think in a lot of ways good. Yeah, but but most recruiters suck, which is why that article went to the top of Hacker News. So maybe the way I'm thinking about this is like because like the world is completely fragmented now, you need to tell a founder level story to candidates. And so with geographic constriction or in like the before pandemic, you could be like we are this kind of agency, we pay this much, we're in this city this is a job apply. And there's like a lot of implicit narrative there that candidates can buy into. I think that's like probably the like lowest cost, highest leverage action for founders is to tell that founder level story in your job post and to the candidates. So candidates can know right away if they're an A player and they're talking to a B level recruiter that doesn't understand their situation. That's a huge turnoff. I think that's basically what we're trying to emulate. Like when you talk to Greg on the phone, you know that like, he understands our client's stories at the founder level. So he understands like, why they started the business, what kind of opportunity it is, what direction it's going. And he can communicate that as like, a peer to A players. Whereas I think most recruiters, you know, they're just playing the numbers game essentially. And so I think that, that, that narrative of what you're doing as a business, that's in our DNA. Like that's how we've always hired is we've told the story of what our business is doing. And I think it's expensive to do and it's why 90% of our job posts don't have a compelling company narrative.
0: Yeah, there's advice that I always give to founders and it's, you're not a big company, don't write a job description that acts like a big company. Don't go read the Target, Best Buy, General Mills job descriptions because they don't have anything to offer. Well, they don't have the same things to offer. What they have is their salaries are probably higher, they have more benefits, but we used to call it combat pay because you have to put up with all the bullshit at those companies, you know, you're kind of in combat. So you make more, but you hate your job versus. If you're a five-person company, ten-person company, what do you actually have to offer? What is your advantage? How can you use that against a larger company? And usually, I, the way I've done it is to almost think of the job description a little bit as a sales letter—not go over the top Dan Kennedy style, but to to be unique, right? And to phrase.
1: You'd be better off to do Dan Kennedy a, style, honestly. Right. I, <laughs> yeah. Early. Yeah, be careful who you copy because there's this big implicit story in a in a job post for Best Buy, right? Yeah, uh, Because it's like, you don't need to write it. Everybody sees Best Buy job posts and they can tell their own story. Well, I, I look at our site and I see these brands that I've never heard of before. And there's 15 employees and it's a genuine life-changing opportunity. But the founder is not taking the time to describe that. And I understand why. It takes a lot of energy, but I feel like that's number one piece of advice right there.
0: Last question for you guys today as we wrap up. Another framework that you've called out a lot is RIP pivot and jam. And it's where you see an idea, you rip it, which just means you like take it and and then you pivot it. So you kind of change it and then you jam on it, right? You basically execute on it. Do you feel like what you've done with Dynamite Jobs, whether it's the job board side, the recruiting side, like did you actively rip, pivot and jam? Because I can see some rip, pivoting and jamming happening right it's like you had the traditional recruiter model and you took it you tweaked it to make it flat fee it's less expensive and you you focus on startups and digital nomad type folks people who are building businesses but not the big companies and i can see it on the job board side as well but what what's your take
1: on that yeah i mean the the fundamental idea of Rip Pivot Jam was like, how can you not be so intellectually challenged to get started in business? Like, it sounds very intimidating to me to come up with a business idea. And so you realize that you're surrounded by 10,000 business ideas every day. So in other words, like you could say, well, scratch your own itch or find a problem or whatever. But how about just look at a business like that business is working, go and sure, talk to the people who run it, make sure it works. These recruiting businesses, it's a billion dollar industry, and it works. And so the, the pivot part is, well, why don't people do that for this? You know, it's like this for that, right? That, that's just the basic pivot. There's a bunch of different ways you can formulate a pivot. In our case, it was simply like, this service is valuable. It's profitable. It has a track record in the world, but there's none of, there's none of it for our people. And our people need it too. So that was simply it. And then the jam part is the thousand days is like, it's not going to work on the month number one. I mean, we had some momentum early, but then you got to hire people. You got to backfill that revenue stream with, now you got to hire belt line and you got to keep plowing through those plateaus. So that's that's just the jam portion.
2: When I look back at like our our business success and failures, like most of our failures were our best ideas, like what we thought were our best ideas, like, oh, here's a brand new idea that's never existed before. Let's put this into the marketplace. It's like thud, doesn't work. And then like the ones that do work are like, hey, this has been around forever. Why don't we just change this a little bit? And I think that, yeah, Rob, there's a lot of that going on in DJ. You know, it's essentially like these things have existed, job boards have, have existed forever recruiting has existed forever now it's like how are we going to pivot this how are we going to make it five percent better this
1: year or this month and repackage it and present it yeah what's the you know picking a fight there's a bunch of different methodologies that come across in startups the rest of us where you can find that pivot we're certainly not fans of copying anybody's work originality is important but you don't need to be original about the conception of how to make money online that's been proven out and so then the question for founders to determine is what's the thing that you can do differently that other people aren't willing to or aren't technically able to do? In our case, we were willing to like cash flow essentially a recruiting service for the price of a job board. Like, There's no job board in the world who was dumb enough to do that. But we were like, we'll do it for yep, two years. Yep. <laughs> Because we could afford to and we were in a unique position to like have a perspective on these cool jobs that our members had that was no other job board had access to those jobs, you know. And so we were able to build these relationships that that was our pivot. Like, okay, there's job boards, but there's no nobody willing to do this. Like you come to Dynamite Jobs, like. A person talks to you about your role and figures out what's best for you. And that's a necessity because other job boards, they're established and they they sell based on trust. And so we had to earn that trust in a different way. And so that was that was our perspective and pivot and it got us to where we are now. Hopefully we can keep it going.
0: And you what you almost 10X last year. And I'll hope, I hope to see a 10X this year. Oh, yeah. it's definitely. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> if folks want to keep up with you guys, you are Anything Ian on Twitter and Tropical MBA as well on Twitter. And of course, Dynamite Jobs, if folks want to check out what you're working on. Thanks so much for coming by,
2: guys. We appreciate it, Rob. Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks to Dan and Ian for showing up. I could talk for hours. And actually, I do talk for hours with those guys. Whenever we get together, last time I was in Austin for MicroConf Local in September, I had a dinner with them and had such a great time with awesome conversation. And I hope to have them back on the show again soon. Thank you for listening every week. If you haven't subscribed, do that. If we're not connected on Twitter, look me up at Rob Walling. And I look forward to being back in your ears again next Tuesday morning.